It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Walter Lamott, president and CEO of Bentley & Co. and founder of Full Range Strategy. Walter has over 40 years of rich retail experience and a network that can get businesses to another level and get the deals done. An entrepreneurial change agent and visionary, Walter is performance-driven and a leader that translates strategic missions into defined outcomes. During his career, he has grown, transformed, and created new retail businesses and business models, whether it be traditional retail, e-commerce marketing, or wholesale. Walter has crafted a successful retail methodology for ensuring success that started when he sold market products door-to-door with his mother when he was just a young man. Walter Lamott, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. Oh, it's great to have you here. And gosh, we spoke about a week or so ago, and I was admiring your little cabin up in the woods, uh, <laughs> up in yes. Quebec. And uh, are you are you recording from that today? I know you've been working mostly remote this last year. Yeah, still remote from the office, but no yeah. working from the city uh, for a couple of weeks. Right, right. Terrific. Well, let's kind of get started. I want to talk about you and growing up. But, you know, how's the pandemic been? I know you've been in the luxury business and, of course, been a retail executive for years. Um, you know, the pandemic's hit retail pretty hard across the world. How, how has your company been faring? And, you know, how are your people and your family during this uh, very challenging time? Yeah, the pandemic, certainly, um, when you look at all challenges that face retailers uh, around the world all the time, uh, this one has certainly been the biggest challenge mm-hmm. in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a very compact, uh, compact way. Um, I would say that the, the, the holding up part is, uh, you know, I, I, we're in touch with our people and we certainly have had a few cases here or there, but for yeah. the most part, everybody's recuperated well. Uh, family-wise, no uh, no issues whatsoever. That's great. Right, right. Um, you know, impact on the actual business itself is pretty devastating. I'm not only in the uh, in the retail enclosed mall business, but I'm also in the travel business. So that's you right. can't yeah. you can't Gosh, have, have a worse trifecta. <laughs> yeah, goodness gracious. Yeah, that's but, so hard because uh, you have retail said, shops as well, right? I mean, for that's, obvious that's reasons, correct. yeah, malls yeah. and standalones. Well, it's been tough. Well, let's let's all hope for a a broad vaccination campaign and uh, getting back to normal in, in 2021. But uh, let's talk about you. And, you know, as I mentioned in the bio, and we just said a couple of minutes ago, you've had a really rich uh, experience in, in the retail and the travel industry. But let, let's start with your early years. Where, where did you grow up and what was your 
you know, your early family life like? Well, I grew up on a, um, what do we call a poor man's farm? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the number one crop was rocks and, uh, and hard clay. <laughs> oh, um, my goodness. <laughs> but it was in the family for generations. It's still where uh, I camp out when I'm uh, out of the city. And uh, basically, it um, it was a uh, a dairy farm uh, when okay. I was very young. Yeah. And um, we, we the thing we could produce more than rocks was work. Um, we <laughs> we certainly had uh, uh, an equilibrium that was uh, was uh, good from a um, feeling that we always had everything we needed, but the work that we put in for the outcome yeah. financially was always, uh, even though I was a young uh, a young boy, I was questioning whether this was all worth it. Right, right. But, uh, dad, he was dad was in, dad was a, a farmer then, or a yes, blue he, was a, How did, he was. Yeah. A, he was a farmer. He was. Yeah. Um, he had a couple of jobs that he would work up in the uh, up in the forest back in the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He would drive the uh, collection of the cream uh, truck, and he uh, was a philosopher, <laughs> self uh, wow. self learned wow. man. Yeah. And mom, mostly mom, in the home? Mom, well, um, we had uh, seven kids and nine wow. foster kids. Oh so, uh, Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Big house. A big household. Yeah, <laughs> she had so more than a full-time job. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. as we, uh, as we um, grew up, we, um, at some point, dad made the decision that uh, he wasn't going to be compliant with the new rules that were coming in for dairy. Oh. And uh, in our family, we've always been in the market garden. So we uh, shifted to market garden and uh, mom took up a, a, an important role on the oh. delivery of vegetables from door to door, which I was very happy to be uh, uh, the partner in crime there. All right. <laughs> so but some of your early entrepreneurial skills, it sounds like, were, were developed then, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and they were sold door to door. What what specific vegetables? Um, well, we had all, the usual uh, the usual variety in, yeah. in our zone. But the, uh, the, the interesting part was that uh, we looked at, you know, product development. Uh, we didn't call it that. We just grew stuff. But uh, product <laughs> development, we would um, merchandise our, our truck that we would take, a half-ton truck, uh, from door to door, and we'd merchandise it such that uh, the uh, customers would be impressed. Uh, back oh. in the day, we're talking uh, the 70s, the, the women uh, were at home. So this uh, 12-year-old blonde kid would run up and down the streets, knock on all the doors, <laughs> the women would come out, and uh, we'd uh, have our portable market, if you will. That's great. So, uh, Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Terrific. And where were you in the pecking order of the seven kids? I was the youngest of the seven the youngest. kids. Oh my goodness. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So a lot of older uh, siblings who also probably, you know, gave you a lot of instruction on what things to do, right? <laughs> what to do, what not to do. <laughs> I love that. Tell us about some of those influencers, you know, who, who are some of the folks, not necessarily siblings, but, you know, maybe things that you remember from mom and dad or coaches or teachers uh, in the early days. Yeah, as as I reflect back often on on the you know what gets you started or what mm. makes you make decisions yeah. that you like or dislike later in life, um, I would think that two influencers that impacted me the most. Uh, first of all, my mom uh, being someone who was a very generous um, mm. individual, uh, being considerably older than I, of course, um, uh, you know, made this uh, even more sweet and um, mm. the learning of of you know how to nurture uh, people and how to nurture mm. conversations how important family was and that was like a, a theme that yeah. uh, 
mom would always make sure no matter how tough things were that we wouldn't forget those things. And well, she ran a big organization. I mean, not only she, seven absolutely. kids and your dad, but then of course the entrepreneurial stuff too. My goodness. Plus, plus the nine foster kids. That, oh, uh, what, nine came. on top of the seven. I thought. Uh, no. On top oh my of the goodness. Wow. Yeah, and you no, had they weren't one all time, there at the same 16, time. <laughs> were there 16 kids all living together at one time? Yeah, uh, no, at one time Off I would say the most we'd ever hit would probably be uh, eight or nine because oh a lot gosh. of the older siblings were moved yeah, out. But yeah, it was always oh, wow. a, a new crew coming in or a new crew going out. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, my yeah, goodness. it was, it was different. And plus I had one of uh, many influences, positive influences from all my siblings, but one of my older brothers kind of took me under his wing. He was closer in, in age. He was a mm. biologist um, and um, uh, just made his, his life was interesting. And he tried to mm. take me away from uh, for at least a couple of weeks a year from the, uh, the, the hard work that we would be doing on the farm so that I could see something else in the world. And I, yeah. I thank him to this day for doing awesome. that. <laughs> awesome. What about school? Was that important to you? Did you do well? Uh, school was a matter of fact for, uh, for a farm boy. I mean, it was just uh, it was important. Uh, we just had to do it. Yeah. Um, I would say that, because uh, people have asked me over the years, um, you know, how you must have done well in school. And I, <laughs> I said, I don't know if I'm embarrassed to say it or not embarrassed to say it, but I was actually a pretty lousy student. Um, I just, uh, I just had, um, we were a, a poor school, poor Catholic school in mm -hmm. a non-Catholic, uh, town wow. and the financing went to the public school, but not to, uh, not to ours. And so the teachers had a good moral base, but not, not anything specs, you know, special from, a an education wise. Yeah. So it just, it yeah. was just, um. It was a good school. It was a good from a, you know, it was a Got place to make sure that you get your basics. Yeah, but yeah, uh, beyond right. that, there wasn't much there. Yeah. And and you gave college a try for a bit. And, yeah, uh, I gave college a try. <laughs> was, so, that a, uh, was that a local a local college? Or? No, it was in Ottawa. It was okay. uh, the college itself. It uh, was okay. Uh, it was the, the challenge was that... Um, the career orientation in uh, in this backcountry was not so good. Right, so sure. they would basically pull out of a hat what the uh, career should be. And since my grades were not so great, uh, they figured I should be a welder in life. And okay. uh, I think they couldn't have picked a, uh, a further away from my interest um, <laughs> occupation. <laughs> so um, it was kind of, it was an applied arts. Uh, it was uh, an applied arts, that's yeah, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it just, it just wasn't me. Uh, yeah. I, and while you can know it's not you, uh, 16 years old going off to the big city, Wow. Um, you're, you're, you're happy, you're excited, you're scared, and you're going into something. You're saying, they really think this is for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gosh. How did they get that? <laughs> right. Right. What, what, did you work other odd jobs either, you know, prior to college, uh, other than the, the, the farm market, uh, work or were there other things that you did, you know, during the, that college year, uh, before you went on to, uh, your, you know, kind of first real job, so to speak. No, not really, because yeah. uh, the, the farm took up everything. Yeah, um, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, once you got to the garden, I mean, I was a foreman at 14 years old, so. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so no, you, uh, you you didn't work outside of the farm. Well, you started in the tailor industry, which is interesting, about a dozen years. Tell us about what attracted you to uh, to that. Well, it's a, it's a different kind of story again, because uh, I worked pipeline for uh, about two and a half years trying to, uh, trying to make use of this trade that I had. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, so you did um, give welding a try. Yes, I did. I did. did. It was a welder's yeah. helper in the high pressure welding in the uh, pipeline business out in uh, Western yeah. Canada. And the, and this is oil, oil pipelines. I this was natural gas, actually. Oh, natural gas. Got it. Okay. And, um, 
you know, it was it was not that I wasn't appreciated. It wasn't that I wasn't viewed as an up and comer very quickly because I was very responsible for my age. Sure. But yeah. I just uh, I just could not see myself um, just trading off the farm for this, which seemed like a, mm. another version of. Right. And right. Um, and so at one point I uh, I went off on my own, away from any kind of security, and I actually was homeless for. Uh, about four months in mm. uh, in Edmonton in the winter, which is a whole, oh my gosh. whole, whole exciting thing. <laughs> Heck to of do. a place to be. <laughs> <laughs> Edmonton minus twenty five, and you're homeless. Oh it's not gosh. like not well planned. Um, but that was uh, trying to find what was the uh, the career possibilities for yeah. me, and what I ended up um, seeing in a paper one day was um, to work in a in a store, and the job itself hardly even. Uh, fizz me as far as what it was, but it, it was just, it just felt like it was the closest thing mm. to when I was happy selling vegetables in the back of a pickup truck yeah, with my mom. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I went there, a part-time job, uh, making so it was retail, three, $3 an hour. Yeah. yeah <laughs> in, right. in a retail environment. Yeah. <laughs> That's wow. right. $3 yeah. an hour, 15 hours a week. So yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, but you stayed with them a number of years and, and claimed the ranks and did you manage uh, a number of retail stores? I know you, I think you left as a district manager, if not mistaken. Yes, as, as a district manager within that context, I moved across the country uh, wow. a couple of times, east to, east to west, uh, became a troubleshooter for them. And uh, yes, as uh, as new ownership came in and, and you could see that the customer was uh, not in the center of uh, decisions being made, uh, I decided to find something else. And I went into yeah. a company called Shermax Fashions. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, this was uh, specialty retail uh, okay. plus size and maternity. So uh, wow. they needed my support, and I was happy to give it. Yeah, so another dozen years there, That's and correct. and kind of went into operations, as I understand it. Were you in the executive suite there? Is that kind of where you ended up? Well, yes, I did, and and again, uh, I remember the 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 first time I was promoted to vice president in 1997 and mm. I I kind of walked away from a very very happy moment because it was brought on me as a surprise wow. um and I said do they know what they're getting into they don't <laughs> even know who they're hiring here like what are they doing they're crazy uh. um and it seemed like every 6 months or so I would be added responsibility and I as much as I couldn't understand it I would I would take it on and at some point, it, it dawned on me that the reason why I was able to do it is because I had the ability with people. And once I know how to listen to people and could support people, that uh, the type of disciplines that were required uh, mattered not as much as that. So, How old were you when you first started managing people? Was that, was that during the, 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 the tip-top tailors days? The truth is, I've managed people from a teenager. Um, oh, that's right. As, yeah, uh, sure. Not doing it well necessarily, but uh, <laughs> but managing it. Um, but I would say Tip Top Tailors was in the, in the professional uh, an, context. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah, and it was an organized yeah. uh, uh, structure, so uh, I had to learn a lot about uh, sure. the laws and and different things. But uh, it was. Um, it was the first and and uh, and probably the best. I, people ask me what university did I went to, and I called it Dialects, which was the <laughs> master company because it was it was truly uh, an organization that taught their people how to uh, how to be good leaders. Yeah, fantastic. And if you recall back, you know some of those early leadership lessons. I'm sure there were mistakes made and you know conquests <laughs> as well. But if you if you kind of think back, you know what were some of those key challenges you had in those early days of first managing people. Well, first managing people is um, is I think the, the the biggest challenge was to um, 
maybe oversimplify uh, what I was expecting from people. Mm, mm. Um, you know, just because I say this is a, this is a good goal for the organization, whatever it is, be it a store, be it whatever the organization is, is enough. And um, and we've you know I found that it took a lot more than that. Um, so then the understanding of building a little bit of structure around an idea mm. um, certainly got us uh, further. And then as I built on that. Um, I found that I could take the lessons learned from building that structure uh, by over-communicating. I would be able to take it into bigger and bigger organizations. Yeah, yeah, cool. And and then you went on to Max, and I think that you had your first CEO job there. Um, now, I, I'm not familiar with that, and you know we have North American listeners, but predominantly U.S. I, I don't know that operation. Are, are they kind of like... Um, an H&M type of, of an operation. I know they're in the apparel business. Tell us a little bit about Mex. Yeah, Mex was uh, purchased by Liz Claiborne, who you would know well oh, okay. uh, sure. from the U.S. Yeah. And one Not of the divisions. Not personally, but yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Um, it was a uh, it was an organization that was founded in Holland, uh, and okay. that's really um, as it came to uh, North America in the mid '90s, I believe, mm -hmm. um, it came as a wholesale brand that was uh, you know saw its ups and downs and all kinds right. of challenges that happened within the. The retail uh, world, uh, they, they certainly had the same ones uh, back then, just not not COVID. <laughs> sure, right, <laughs> um, right. And um, so I was brought in to do a couple of things. One was to uh, bring the organization from a wholesale organization to um, a retail. Right. I was also one to bring it from a private organization to a corporate um, public organization. Oh, wow. So these, wow. um, these, these were very unique challenges. And... Yeah. Um, you know, an entrepreneur uh, does what he does because of instinct. Uh, when you're working in the public domain, uh, you <laughs> you have to do things uh, a little bit differently. So uh, yeah. that was my my role there, and we took. Did, did on you all did of you come brands. over as CEO, or did you come into a C-suite role before? I came in a C-suite role. It was yeah. executive vice president, then right, made right. president of uh, Mex. And then in 2007 was made CEO of Liz Claiborne Canada, which had, okay. uh, we had 14 brands at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. And you spent about a decade there and then, and then went on to, uh, to Raymond's. Now tell us a little bit about that transition because, you know, for obvious reasons, gosh, you, you made it to the C-suite. You're relatively young at that age, you know, vis-a-vis -vis your peers. Um, but then you made the switch to, to another operation. Tell us a little bit of the thinking around that. Well, the thinking was that we um, we were at a point where Liz Claiborne was looking to um, divest uh, a lot of its interest, and okay. Mex Canada was was a separate entity from right. Europe right. at that point. But they were right. going to, uh, to to sell, and I had brought uh, to the table, um, you know, suitors, and um, they were we we couldn't get it off the ground for for a multitude of reasons but right. um but when i saw that they were going to do it and uh, mex europe was going to be included in the deal mm. um i knew that it was best for me to uh, to make an agreement to move on yeah so that's where and then and then was was I mean, is it, were they a direct competitor or are they kind of a different uh, uh, uh you know sector of the fashion uh, no a different industry. sector yeah. uh, there was one division that could have been at that time a, a competitor it became the replacement of mex as i left uh, 3 years later there was no more mex um but um but no directly it was a um five divisions of um you know mid class if you will uh, mm -hmm. fashion mm -hmm. 
Um, and um, yeah, we a much were lar- a much larger thing. organization than Next. Much larger, yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, right, when right. I left, we were uh, just shy of a billion dollars. Wow! Wow! Privately held. Uh, no, public held. Public public uh, health company. Public yeah. health, yeah. Yeah. Got it. And uh, so about six and a half years there. And then I think you went on, you did, did some consulting work and kind of did your your own, you know, operations. We mentioned full range uh, strategy in the, in the bio. Um, and then, of course, Bentley came along and we want to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But um, it, again, what was uh, kind of the impetus to kind of go out on your own, kind of do your own consulting? Was the company sold or was there some transitions there that took place? Uh, the transitions were basically, um, as, as you bring to the table, uh, I think that there's a time when, um, you bring to the table what you have and the next phase, if the founders that we were still in the business uh, do not believe in the next phase, mm. then you, you, you find something else. And it was, it was <laughs> right. just time. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, no, it was, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience of, uh, transformation of an organization we brought in a a business of uh, e-commerce that uh, went from uh, 1% of the uh, sales to today i think it's over 20% wow um and um, and those we were, were early proud. days right those that was were early back, days yeah, that's right yeah yeah mid, mid uh, it was yeah. really seen as a as a we must be in the e-com business but we're not sure why to um, having it being a, a pretty significant part of our capital investment as we grew right. Right, right. Um, so moving on from there, it was uh, it was just time to 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 rethink because yeah. it's uh, you know you need to do this in your in your career, and I'll probably if all all things go well, I'll be doing it again, um, where you can rethink and see what your new priorities are in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And starting out on my own, there was uh, there was already an impetus of uh, of coaching and and uh, and and seeing you know problems uh, that companies that are in the business for a very long time stop seeing. So I was able to help out, um, you know, the odd, uh, odd different company here or there. But, um, but what I found was uh, I wasn't ready for was the coaching and putting in a lot of time and effort um, on something that if someone else didn't believe in, it wouldn't go anywhere. And um, so then Bentley uh, was approached to, uh, to help uh, reposition Bentley in 2018 and, uh, Jumped so they, on the opportunity. They, they were one of your clients then when you went out on your own. Is that correct? Uh, they were going to be just going a client be, at yeah. some point, and then it became uh, it became the gig. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, because it uh, the challenge was um, was quite significant. Right, right, awesome. And that's been since uh, mid of eighteen and up to pre COVID. <laughs> you know, because there's yeah. always going to be that gap that all retailers and most companies that have been hit so hard by this will have to explain, or or people will know. You know, it's 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 funny as a recruiter. You know, I always look at that two thousand seven to two thousand ten period. You know, with with a very flexible eye. Right. So because so many executives were hit so hard during those economic crisis. And I think, you know, we'll 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 do we we'll be doing the same thing looking back at the pandemic period. Hopefully there'll be a start and an end to it. We don't know what the end is yet. Not but, yet. <laughs> uh, you know, when you when you think about kind of pre-COVID, what were some of the biggest challenges that you saw at, at Bentley coming in? And, and, you know, what attracted you to say, hey, this is a you know, this is a gig I'd like to take full time and, and help take it to the next step? The premise of of being the solution for travelers mm. uh, is is a great thing because uh, you know I don't know too many people who are traveling and hate it. Uh, you know, people <laughs> right. are going on a That's trip; right. they love it. So it's a yeah, yeah. it's a good moment in time. It's a mm. good moment in someone's life, someone's day. Sometimes we over travel for sure, but you know, even as much travel as I would do in 
in in pre-COVID, I I would say at the end of the year, I'm glad the travel's over for the year, and I was right. anxious for it to start up again every single year because yeah. it is yeah. a it's a it's culturally enriching. It's a, it is it just keeps you on the go. It's it's a wonderful thing. Well, you know, j- just to that point, I have to tell you, having someone that traveled fairly extensively in my corporate career, probably less so on the recruiting side, but you're absolutely right. There's always the anticipation. There's the meeting of new people, business or personal. There's the, antis- you know, anticipation of, you know, going to meeting a new, you know, people, going, going to a new place. And to have literally said for the last year to have not taken one trip, not one international trip, <laughs> maybe only one domestic. I mean, it, it really is always going to be a back a, a gap. And, you know, you wonder about the things. And now there's been other benefits, right? We spend a lot more time at home. We've gotten close to our children, et cetera. But, but you know, you're absolutely right. I do miss that. I miss that opportunity to go to new places and meet new people and do new things. I, I can't say that I would put on one hand the people that I've met that say, I hate traveling. <laughs> Right, I, right. I, they might hate some parts of it. Yeah, they don't exactly. like you know being exactly. you know hung over in a yeah. in in a in an airport because of a snowstorm or something. But right, but right, you know the right. the whole aspect of of travel. So for me, it was a happy place. It was it yeah. was a place that if yeah. I could help them there and and basically the challenge of the business was over assorted, overstored, over everything mm-hmm. um, based on a model like many many retailers. Um, the model changes whether you change it or not, and right, so. Right. Uh, it was no different that way. It just took us a little longer because of the, uh, you know, the challenges that we had were were quite significant. I think right. uh, you look from outside, you say, yeah, I think I know these five things are important to uh, to look at. You get inside, you start digging and you find another 50. <laughs> but um, I found good people. I found um, mm. there was a lot of good work actually had been done. It just really wasn't uh, wasn't set out as, as the priorities that they should have been. And right. um then we uh, we had to uh, file for protection before it was mm. uh, in style, yeah. Um, yeah. and we cleaned up a lot of our leases, and we just and we that just was pre-COVID, threw, right? You, that's you yeah, pre-COVID, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah um, and quite frankly, if we wouldn't have done that, then we wouldn't be here today because yeah, uh, yeah. that gave us a chance to uh, to have a fresh start. Always a difficult uh, transition to do, but you know, if you look back and you you start saying you know COVID and what it's done. Um, I can tell you that uh, a CEO from Dialex back in the mid '80s uh, put up on uh, the acetate screen, um, <laughs> and uh, what he showed this uh, this young group of uh, of managers was a list of uh, retailers at the time that we mm. knew quite well. And he said, "Of these retailers, who will be here by the time we hit 1990?" Mm. Mm. And um, so we had guessed maybe 10% wouldn't be there, some we knew something about. And he said, it's the opposite, 10% will be here. Um, and from 1985 to 1995, uh, his predictions were pretty accurate. Were and wow. even when the names were still there, was no longer under the same ownership or there was, yeah, uh, yeah. including ironically, the company we were actually working for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not the first time we go through transition. It's not yeah. the first time that we think it's the end of retail. It's not the first time that the economy goes for a spin. Um, mm. I think it's once a decade. I think the yeah. cause is making changes happen to the world in a much faster uh, pace than any of these other changes, which took four to five years before it, its full impact was felt. But uh, 2007, eight and nine, as you we were talking about. Um, but when you get to this, this is in one year, uh, complete transformation of how you do things. It's, yeah. That is unseen, I think. 
And the company's been around since the mid eighties, right? Wasn't that it? That is correct. Yeah. 87. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how many employees today? How many different retail have, operations, uh, stores? 1200 employees. We have 160 oh. stores. We have, stores. uh, Three repair centers. We're the repair wow. center of choice for um, Samsonite and Briggs and Riley and and, yeah. and many more. Um, we support airlines that um, that uh, un, unbeknownst to them, they uh, they have a way to break luggage or lose it. So uh, we are <laughs> we are there to pick up the pieces on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, literally sometimes. <laughs> yes, I gotta imagine. <laughs> and yeah. um, and we have an e-com business, and uh, we're. Wow. We've been using this pandemic really to rethink our, our business model and, and to pivot on certain products like right. uh, how do you do you know protection for COVID? Uh, how do you um, supply office at home? Uh, how do you um, uh, you know cater more to the travel, the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. travel and all of those things which have just uh, raised to the top of the important scale of mm -hmm. our of our clientele. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been pivoting and uh, so far uh, it's allowed us to uh, to bring in enough revenue to uh, yeah. keep us afloat till this thing yeah. is over. Awesome, terrific. And and uh, do you manufacture as well? Are you distributing other people's products? Is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. Okay. We yeah. have uh, three, uh, three main brands that mm -hmm. uh, we own. Right. And the balance is, um, is whatever comes through. We're very big, uh, which is rare for a travel store on back to school. Uh, oh, really? we, uh, we sell the oh. most, uh, backpacks in uh, Canada, yeah. um, than any other, uh, any other brand. Yeah. Um, and we're just uh, the go-to place for the young kids when it's time to go back to school. They're yeah. very excited. They come in with the family and they're doing yeah. cartwheels to, to get their new backpacks. <laughs> find, so it's find their new good. backpacks. Yeah, and, it's and are your products sold to other retailers as well, the Bentley product brands? There's a, the, we've started a little bit, but mm -hmm. not uh, not a tremendous amount just yet. Yeah. But we will be uh, in a, uh, one of our brands is called Black Book, which is a, a business more, a more sophisticated, if you will. Yeah. Um, and we'll be distributing that in the, uh, in the U S as well as Canada, uh, yeah. other and than in Bentley. Companies still privately owned or, or are they publicly traded now? No, privately owned. Privately owned. Yeah. Got it. So a family member still involved or is it a private no, equity? No, this there? was, uh, this was sold out to a private equity in, right. um, about eight, nine years ago. And, okay. um, I brought in new partners, uh, last year right. out of the UK and, uh, yeah, so we're, um, we're on a new journey. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, you know, one of the things that is so important, of course, as, uh, you know, the, 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 the company is, you know, going through these transitions, particularly with new ownership and new leadership is, you know, just kind of what the C-suite looks like. And, you know, do you have kind of a typical type of a, you know, retail operations with a head of finance and head of store ops and set, et cetera, or are you organized a little differently than, than some of your other competitors? That's a good question. We're we're even trying to uh, to evolve that because for mm. sure uh, the the base is pretty traditional. It's uh, you know with within in the guardrails of uh, of each of the responsible uh, you know uh, store ops to as to to your point. Right. So we've divided it up more about customer experience um, and procurement and branding. So it's kind of like two major hubs that we have within the organization. And, and then we have our finance and we have our logistics right. and we right. have all these other components. But the customer experience uh, with um, another individual for brands and procurement is uh, relatively new. And we think that's, mm. um, that's, that's going to be, I don't know about magic, but it's certainly we see already the the harmony between online and in stores where yeah. sometimes you create silos uh, without intending to do so.
You know, you mentioned an, early, an interesting dynamic earlier about, you know, everyone guessing that 10% of the companies be away and it was really 90%. And I'm sure that's similar in other businesses. But, you know, I think in retail, um, well, I, I want to ask you, is it is because customers like to get new experience because retail really is an experiential type of thing? Do you think is that's why there's so much change or or do retailers tend to kind of just get, you know, caught in their own lane, so to speak, in, in their own ruts and, and don't, you know, want to change things much? <laughs> oh, that's probably very true. Um, I think that as soon as you have a formula, I've seen uh, I've seen organizations, I've seen people within those organizations tell me about the formula that's been great, but it stopped being great ten years ago, and they keep yeah, trying to revive they keep it. Keep trying to revive it. Um, yeah. And I think the people pay the price in the meantime because they they must be the people that that did the formula wrong as to why we went mm -hmm. off the rails. The truth is, the formula needs to change as people change. Yeah. I mean, you think about the big U.S. big retailers like Gap and and others that have done well and, you know, but, but they, you know, they, they usually get about a 10 year run. Right. And then and then all of a sudden, you know, there's there's the, all the new upstarts that are around and, you know, <laughs> the old standards are there no more. Yeah, I think that we've never seen the upstarts like we're going to see in the next 18 wow, months. I think really the so. yeah. the new entries into the business, uh, I mean, one of the call outs that I've did with my team is to say, we need to think like a startup. I mean, no startup has 167 stores, but right, if you don't think right. like a startup, we're going to be um, just doing what is wrong That's better. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's so true. And I think you just need to con continually look at change. How do you change things up? How do you, you know, continue to stay relevant with your customer base, right? Um, you know, I know how different, you know, I've got three millennial kids, right? And I just know how different their tastes are uh, than my tastes were at their ages in the in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. yeah. And the attention span to any one brand is very <laughs> yes. short. Yes, exactly. Uh, to, to last longer than uh, yeah. than a school year, um, it would be it'd be something. I mean, it's like, yeah. So it's a it is a challenge, but it's not a new challenge. I think again, mm. COVID is is you know is is taking the brunt for all things that are wrong right now. But I would say that there are many many formulas that were not working. I think uh, you know over leverage retailers is is coming mm. to light, uh, right, right. Uh, and and formulas. Quite frankly, that you know some of the formulas that I find interesting as a note is that in the retail business, which I've been all my life, um, and see how we can get all excited about a pure play online. And again, right. speaking about retail, um, and yet uh, you can't find a handful that are actually making money. Yeah, um, You know, the formula- There's not a lot of really, Amazons really, out there. <laughs> and, and Amazon doesn't make money from that part, right? Uh, they that's make true, money from that's right. Well, look, look, look who Bezos, you know, we're, we're living now in uh, mid-February and Jeff Bezos, Bezos has just announced his retirement. Who did he bring as a successor? The guy that's been running the web services, right? Where all the money's yeah, of course. been made. Yeah, but that's yeah. that's where the money is for that's sure. Right. That's so right. So there's yeah. no magic solution to saying I pay this much for a product. The customer is willing to pay this much, and uh, everything else in between is what it costs me to get it there. And there's no way they're shipping for free. So yeah, that that right. whole thing is uh, is a challenge. And anyway, there's many many challenges. I think that in itself will be uh, corrected in time because the consumers do correct the market. Um, but right now, this this I, I know you know them. I know them. The companies in the U.S. and Canada, two hundred million, three hundred million. I so one was over a billion dollars yet yeah. to turn a profit. That's right. And you're going That's okay. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When's that going to happen? Yeah, I don't know. I just I was I was raised with different math. But yeah, you know, that's, that right. That's, that's right. That's right. 
Well, Walter, you've been, you know, as you said, in retail for pretty much your entire career. We'll, we'll say 30 plus years, right? 30 plus That's years. Okay. <laughs> how, how would you say your leadership's evolved over time, particularly as it relates to, you know, managing large retail operations? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that the it's evolved because the, the situations evolve, um, mm. the circumstances evolve. But the fundamental coaching of how people need to think about whatever challenges they're facing um, hasn't changed all that much. Um, you know, the, the people uh, 20 years ago needed to be listened to um, and, and felt they were understood so that you could bring them to a place that they would be performing better. That's no different today. Um, the difference, I think, today in the styles of, and I, I'm not sure that I wasn't already there to start with, but is to not um, not treat people like they they have to do this one thing, but that they can cross over to other disciplines within the organization. They can, their opinion matters. I want to listen. I don't care about titles. I don't care about, you know, lanes and all that stuff. Yeah. We have to, we have to put discipline in to get the job done. But mm -hmm. when it comes to the rest, uh, I think we just spend too much time uh, worried about the, um, the structure of organizations mm -hmm. rather than what the people can contribute. And I don't know that that's a lot different than it used to be. Yeah. yeah. How does culture play a role? You know, you've worked for large publicly traded companies. You're now working, of course, for a privately owned company. And, you know, the president and CEO really does kind of carry that responsibility for, for company culture. It's different maybe if a company's been maybe 100 years old or so, but still, you know, there are opportunities to, to turn the dials and push the buttons. How, how does that play a role? And, 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 you know, maybe you can talk to a little bit about what the Bentley uh, culture is like. Well, culture to me is is simply um, people's behaviors and what is acceptable and what is not as a, as a collective. Um, and if you talk about you know what is the culture of an organization, um, the CEO plays an enormous role, and everyone that is a leader in that in that organization has to have, um, if not the same vision, a very similar vision in order for. Um, a culture to thrive. Uh, mm. If we if we work on the premise that um, culture in a home, or culture on the street, or culture in a mm. country, is based on the collective behaviors, then that's the only thing that should be focused on is to say, mm. well, what are the what are the the behaviors that make sense for the culture we wish to achieve? And mm. um, so the behavior of listening right. uh, when somebody speaks, the behavior of not putting title before presence um, and, and many, many things like that. And then communicate. Uh, I love yeah. to, uh, one could say I over communicate. <laughs> I'll err on that side before I'll err yeah. on the other. Yeah. So that yeah. people know, even in these times, you know, that, that people need to know that uh, we're still here, uh, that we're working and what we're working on. I think that they should know what we're working on. Um, and why we think that this is a winnable fight. And um, mm. even if they're sitting at home because there's no choice and the stores are closed, um, they're sitting at home saying, but you know what? We have the leadership. They know what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. And I have confidence I'm going to come back. So culture to me is is that. And I believe that Bentley has that in spades. Mm. Awesome. I know you're not doing a lot of hiring now. And uh, we're all kind of <laughs> hopeful that we'll get to the end of this uh, soon. But, but you know, when you, when you, you know, get back going and in the past, obviously, as you've, you know, brought new people in, you know, what are you looking for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? 
Well, it's never the easy one. Um, yeah. the, the, the first thing is, is, you know, the, the talent and the skill itself, because what mm. is it that you're trying to achieve and, and the people that you're looking at, do they, do they seem, uh, based on references, based on what you know from them, um, to match that. And, right. um, when I'm speaking to someone that we're going to bring into the company, um, I think many of my past uh, interviewees uh, would tell you that, you know, he didn't ask me much about the job yeah. um, because I'm more concerned about how they think mm. than what they think. Um, yeah. Because what they think is going to change uh, as they get more information. Uh, they're they're going to be influenced to information they can't possibly have before they step foot in the building. Right. Um, mm. But how they think is very important because you need to be flexible and the changing times and everything else that we know is, uh, is driving, um, you know, decision-making. And I want people to be able to say, um, based on how I think about this problem, mm. I don't think we're heading the right place. And they can tell me that, and I have no problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get at that? I mean, do you, um, uh, you know, give them scenarios that you look to see how they think getting through that? Or are there a couple of key questions that you like to ask to get at that ability to think and demonstrated ability to think? Yeah, I, I'm probably non-traditional for that as well, because mm -hmm. I, I try to find the, um, the, the, uh, the place in the interview where someone is going to open up about um, any, any small circumstance, it doesn't mm. really matter. And then, and then surprise them with questions that they didn't expect. Mm. And, um, you know, I like a sense of humor. So if the first thing they do is smile or they, they laugh, um, it tells me something about, you know, okay, didn't see that coming kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. it's very unorthodox. It's, mm. uh, it is a feeling at the end of the day, but often I have the privilege of having, you know, people doing a lot of pre-sourcing of, of the, people where I'm course. interviewing yeah, by the time right. they get to me. So, yeah, you know, the skill too. sets has been evaluated. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not, uh, I, I wouldn't, I don't even know if I'd qualify to do uh, most of the interviews as far as the, <laughs> the first run of these things. Yeah. But, um, but if you're going to join the team at any capacity, how, uh, how are you coming to the table in the way you think about things? And right. um, that to me is, is, is key. And we Walter, make mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Walter, you've been very generous with your time, but we always ask one last question of our CEO guests. Sure. And that's what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that, you know, maybe has their eyes on the corner office or maybe doesn't know they, they, they want to advance. They've got some career aspirations and, um, you know, they're, they're looking to, uh, the future and, but, you know, maybe they're 10, 15 years, uh, behind their career or behind your career. Um, what, what kind of career advice would you give someone like that, particularly in the retail profession? Well, if they're thinking about this, they're probably getting close to being paid as much as they could be paid for doing whatever they do. Mm. What they have to be embarking on is the balance of that career. You get paid for what you influence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you can't sell your ideas, if you don't know what the ideas should be to start with, if you're not a thinker about what not to do what happens today, but what is going to be happening later. Mm. Um, and then I think that, uh, be to me, if you, you know, the, the, we have, uh, cause we're can we're Canadian. We think about uh, hockey a lot and Wayne Gretzky's famous, uh, <laughs> it, it, anybody can be where the puck is, but it's Skate to anticipate where the puck's, where the puck's be. going to be. <laughs> it's um, one of my so, favorites, Walter. I love it. <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> so I think that there's a lot of that to, to yeah. be looked at, but yeah. you know, you, as a CEO, you get paid to influence, you influence right. investors, you influence your people, you influence your customers yeah. and the art of influence doesn't come from command. 
Mm. It comes from painting a picture that people can get on board with. Well, Walter Lamont, President and CEO at Bentley & Co., thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 